Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. Verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. And then I took and sealed the deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions of the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in the presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both sealed of deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Jeremiah said, this is verse 24, Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, Lord, O God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses. So the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 36, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, 
and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negeb. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit to illumine us here this morning. Father, we would understand this, your very word. Bring us closer to Jesus, whom we hail as King, coming into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. Jesus, thank you for your life and death and resurrection, your welcome of grace through and through. Father, would you be glorified in taking our hard and skeptical hearts and moving them towards your Son, even now? Would we know your generosity? We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So here on Sunday mornings during Lent, we are going through what we're calling our Practices of Presence as part of the Represence Initiative here at Liberty Collingswood that we started way back in the fall. And this Sunday in particular, we are going to be talking about generosity and stewardship. What do you think about that? Generosity and stewardship, I think, is probably a fairly uncontroversial value. No matter who you are, no matter where you came from, whether you identify with the political right or the political left, whatever it is, you're probably on board with generosity, right? If you're at a backyard barbecue, summer's coming, I hear, and you'll be with friends and neighbors and say at that backyard barbecue, you'll be hanging out with somebody that you haven't met before and that person says, you know what's wrong with the world? Generosity. People are just way too stinking generous. I hate it. I can't stand it. You're, you're not going to want to hang out with that person again. You're, you're going to think twice about going back to that backyard barbecue because you're going to think, what other issues does this guy have? This, this is really, really strange. So universal agreement. We are in favor of generosity. We love Giving Tuesday. You know what Giving Tuesday is? The Tuesday after Thanksgiving where charitable organizations of all kinds say, this is the day when you give. We're on board. But only kind of. And this is the rub. This is the rub. We say we love Giving Tuesday, but we're really Black Friday kind of people, aren't we? We'll pay lip service to Giving Tuesday, but our hearts are all wrapped up in the consumerism of something like Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, Friday morning. That's when all of the best deals of the year happen, that's when the videos go viral about the crowds building up outside the door of the big box store and then they open at the crack of dawn and everybody stampedes in like a herd treating every big box store like a golden corral and oh it's great look at all these these videos the humanity of it all that's where our hearts are i was talking to a skeptical friend of mine recently skeptical towards christianity and he said, in my opinion, as I look around, the religion of America, pretty universally, is consumerism. We are all consumers. We are all about money. And I pretty much agreed. And sociologists will say that through the generations, what we consume varies a little bit. So as you go from boomer to Gen X to millennial to Gen Z, the older you are, statistically speaking, you'll be more into acquiring a lot of stuff. The younger you are, statistically, you'll be more about acquiring and accumulating various experiences. But either way, 
we are driven by consuming. We want more. But then my friend went on to say, and Jim, as I look at the church, as I look at Christians, it's exactly the same way. It's exactly the same way. I don't see a difference. And you have all of these followers of Jesus that will say, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. God is the most important thing in my life. But we run after the dollar like everybody else. And that stung. And my friend didn't mean this as a personal, intentional criticism towards me, but the reason it stung was because I didn't really see that I could disagree with him. Jesus of Nazareth, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, identified this problem when he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For what you treasure, where your treasure is, that's what you run after. That's where your heart is. What drives me? What drives us? Isn't it the case that I just want to get mine? I want to have enough. I want to have enough security. I want to have enough fun. I'm a consumer. And when we think about consuming, when we think about money, in the language of the scriptures, these are idols. We idolize money. We idolize consuming. I came across a really good definition of idolatry just a couple weeks ago. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in London in the mid-20th century. He put it this way about idolatry. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life. Anything that seems to me essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time, my attention, and my energy. Consuming. Money. Doesn't that attract a lot of yours and my time, attention, and energy. We are all about it. Or you could trace it by the negative. When you're stressed out, when you're angry, when you're jealous. Aren't at least a couple of those anger points and jealousy points because of consuming? Oh, look at the vacation that this friend gets to take. Look at where they're having dinner. Look at what they're able to do. Look at all the fun that they're having. And I'm worried that I'm just not going to get what I need for myself. Trace those stress points and you'll find idolatry of consuming and money and greed. Or here's a test experiment. Say you're at a job and your boss says, congratulations, you've got a raise. Maybe this has happened to you or you can picture it happening. A couple of you might be thinking, I cannot actually picture that happening with my boss. The, congratulations, you've got a raise. Won't your first thought be, for most of us, that's awesome, what else can I buy? What else can I do with this extra money? For how many of us would be the first thought, congratulations, you've got a raise, and you'll say, that's great. How much more can I give? And to whom? 
We're not wired that way. And so we're sunk. And they wonder, is generosity for us, either as Christians, if you're here as a Christian this morning, or as human beings, is it all just hopeless? But I would commend to you a two-step Bible program. Number one, let's call the Bible true when it says we are sinful and selfish creatures. And in my heart of hearts, I don't like that language being applied to myself. I'll think, hey, don't call me that. But the proof in the pudding is how little generosity we exercise in our lives. The Bible is unflinchingly accurate about our selfish hearts. But the Bible also says that in the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, in the gospel, only a radical solution will do. What if generosity were not hopeless for us? And how might we grow? So three brief parts from here, from Jeremiah chapter 32, when we think about generosity and stewardship, foolishness, fruitfulness, and fullness. Foolishness, fruitfulness, and foolish. I pull out all the stops. I get back to my alliterative roots on something like Palm Sunday. I hope you all appreciate it. Foolishness. Jeremiah 32. God tells Jeremiah to buy a field. And yes, I would agree this chapter, this passage, this story is not about giving per se, but I think it informs it. And I've always loved this story. I've always been fascinated by it. Jeremiah would go by a field. And if you know a little bit about Jeremiah, like I said before, I read the scripture passage, prophet to the southern kingdom Judah that was right about to fall. And Jeremiah had a crazy life. He was always in trouble, always on the run, conspiracies always against him. He was thrown into a pit, literally, for crying out loud. Lots of crazy things happening. And then also you have this episode here, when things are pretty bad for Jeremiah. I think of the beginning of Revenge of the Jedi when Han comes out of Carbonite and he's blind and he asks Luke, so how are we doing? And Luke says about the same as always and then Han says, that bad, huh? This is where Jeremiah is. It's always kind of that bad for him. We pick up again verse 1 and 2. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. Jeremiah in prison, and with the dating that's used in verses 1 and 2, scholars realize the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Judah, is just months away. It's all going to come crumbling down very, very soon. But then the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, have I got a bargain for you? Here's a great proposition. I want you to go buy your cousin's field. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Jeremiah, you were going to buy your cousin's field. And that must have seemed to Jeremiah a completely irrational command. You want me to invest. You want me to spend money on what is 
by definition, a diminishing, declining asset. Our country is being overrun. And when I was looking at the commentaries about this passage, thinking about Hanamel, the cousin of Jeremiah, I thought of Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation. He's kind of the country bumpkin, and he got in some kind of trouble, probably, because he's in debt. And he must be thinking, I have hit the jackpot because God is telling my cousin to take this asset off my hands. I can actually make a profit off of this right now. Hey, cuz, remember me? Go ahead and buy the field. And Jeremiah does, verse 9. And I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. Then you have a real estate transaction, actually not super different from how real estate is transacted today in the following verses. And yes, God says, I have a bigger, better plan. Verses 14 and 15, there is going to be a return back into Israel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and, and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. But Jeremiah, it must have felt so foolish to him. You want me to invest in land now? That's a horrible idea. Jeremiah complains in verse 24, God, behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the lands of the Chaldeans, a.k.a. Babylonians, who are fighting against it. Verse 25, yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. God, this seems so foolish. But that's the point. And this is where I gather from this story that God calls us to give foolishly, extravagantly. And by being foolish with our generosity, by being extravagant, I don't mean irresponsible, but let's face the music. A lot of us are way too responsible, quote-unquote, when it comes to generosity, where we just don't give. We're just not generous enough. And probably better than foolish, a word like extravagant. Let's be extravagant in our generosity. We have that all over the Bible. One of my favorite examples, and many of you have heard me talk about from the Gospel of Luke, one of the four narrative accounts of Jesus' life. Chapter 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers. Do you remember how many come back and say thanks? You know, one. But that's okay. Because Jesus is extravagant in healing all 10 of them. And yeah, it's great that one came back, but I'm going to be lavish in what I give to other people. Or a couple chapters later in Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. The short guy, the tax collector, climbs up in a tree. Jesus comes through town. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, you come down from coming to your house today. Right? Zacchaeus believes in Jesus, and he's changed from the inside out. And he says, Jesus... I know you now. I believe in you. You're the Savior. And I'm going to take half of all of my possessions and give it all to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, not so fast. It's actually too much giving. It's too much generosity. Instead, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, for he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And there is a beauty, isn't there? 
I bet some of the people you most admire are the ones that are so incredibly generous. And it's even our duty to do so. Way back in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to look at this passage coming up in our home meetings, I believe, soon, where the law of God says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And you can go back and read the context of Deuteronomy chapter 15. There are no qualifiers. It's just open your hand, and whatever your poor brother or sister needs, you give it. Foolish giving as an act of obedience. All right, think of the Phillies. You heard it here first. The Phillies are going undefeated this year. Book it. 162-0. and zero. They're off to a great start. If you're a Phillies fan, you might remember a couple off-seasons ago, the majority owner of the Phillies, John Middleton, made this comment because there were some pretty big free agents coming on the market. He said, this off-season, we're going to spend stupid money. We're going to spend stupid money. And the Phillies fan base, including myself, said, you're, you've never spent stupid money before. You were in a big market, market here, but you act like the Phillies are the poorest small market team out there. But he proved us wrong, and he signed... Bryce Harper, MV3, and it was great. And then this offseason, Philly thought, hey, we're still not that good. We need to go over the luxury tax to be able to buy more players, to spend more money. And they did. And it was worth it. Spend stupid money being generous. And understand, too, and this is where the stewardship piece comes in, being able to be foolishly extravagant and generous, it takes some planning. It takes some budgeting to be able to build in enough margin into your spending habits that you're not always just maxed out and, and pressed. I, I, have, I, I have every spent accounted for for myself. I can't give to anybody else because I am already in the red in so many different ways. Build margins so that you can become more generous. But when you do... Foolish, extravagant generosity is freedom. It's freedom. We practice self-forgetfulness in those moments. It is so freeing. It pushes back on the consumerism, and it writes a different story. So what steps might you take? What steps might you take to become more generous? And maybe it's a function of just ripping the Band-Aid off and saying, hey, I'm just going to start, and I'll figure it out later. God calls us to foolish generosity, but then also fruitfulness. And I intend this as a balancing point. Let's give foolishly, but then also fruitfully. Let's do both. All of the resources that you have, all of the money that you have, that's for investing. That's for giving. What's it all for? Be fruitful with it. And if you're new to Liberty Church Collingswood, if this is your first time here, you're, you're relatively new, we only think happy thoughts all the time here at Liberty Collingswood. Here's another one. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. What account will we give at the end of time for whether we were generous or not? I think of the movie Schindler's List. I only saw it once. It came out when I was in high school. We took a class field trip 
to see Schindler's List. It's an amazing movie. I only saw it once, not because I hate it. I, I love it, it, but it just destroys me. It's about Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, who had great risk to himself, a German business person that sticks his neck out and pays a lot of money to get as many Jewish people as possible rescued from Hitler and from the Holocaust. If you know the movie at the very end, there's a scene where he's being thanked by a lot of Jewish people for what he did for them. But he breaks down and he says, I didn't do enough. He looks at his car that he's about to get into and drive away. He says, 10 people, 10 people. I could have gotten 10 more people out if I had sold the car. Then he looks at a pin on his lapel and he says, two people. One person certainly, one person for sure could have gotten them out. And I'm not saying this to guilt you, but I am saying it to bring a moment of clarity to us. What will we say? And isn't it true that we are so inwardly focused when it comes to planning things like vacations or home renovations? We pretty much fetishize the whole planning process where we spend so much time and so much energy and so many details or even buying a coat or a pair of shoes. If we would take a fraction, a fraction of that time and energy and passion and apply it to generosity, we would be transformed. Be fruitful in your generosity. That's what Jeremiah is doing here. God says there will be a return. It can look like you're purchasing a diminishing asset, but my people are going to come back. And there's going to be a lot of commerce here once again. End of the passage, verses 42 to 44. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it's a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, indeed signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, Places about Jerusalem, Judah, hill country, Shephelah, Negeb, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And as this comes into the New Testament, this picture of return, this promise of return, is not just about a piece of real estate in the ancient Near East, but it's when Jesus comes back, when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And the hosannas that are sung and shouted at Palm Sunday all of those years ago will prove only to be a preview echo of the hosannas that we give to King Jesus when he comes back again. That's going to be the return. And in light of that day, we are called to be generous in this one. Be generous foolishly, but focus on fruitfulness. What are we investing in now? I first heard a sermon from this passage in the late 1990s. Phil Riken, who was a longtime pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, now president of Wheaton College, preached on this passage, and it stayed with me. This is what he said about the passage. Nothing is too wonderful with God. If God says he will rebuild Jerusalem, then rebuild it he will. And if God says it is a good time to buy, then it is a buyer's market for men and women of faith. Let's be generous. And don't get me wrong. Should we take care of ourselves and take care of our family? Yes, of course. But at least as I look at my own life, my own heart, my own bank account, I can use taking care of myself and my family as an excuse for a ton of selfishness and self-centered behavior. 
What about other people? What about the kingdom of God? One of my heroes when it comes to generosity, an older guy now in Philadelphia for a long time, a man named Bill Crispin. He's a little bit of the band behind the band. We talk a fair amount about Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City. It was Bill Crispin who was also in Philadelphia. Tim Keller in the 1980s was at Westminster Seminary, where I went to seminary as well. And Bill Crispin, longtime urban missionary, he planted a little Presbyterian church in South Philly in the 1970s when everybody with resources was trying to get out of the city. He went in, 15th and Federal. It was a really rough area back then. That church is still there. Bill Crispin told Tim Keller, what about Manhattan? Maybe you should go there. And he's like, I don't want to plant a church in a city. And he's like, no, I, I really think you should. I was having breakfast with Bill Crispin in the early 2000s. And he was talking about money and generosity. And he said, everything we do should be for other people. And he said, I have a retirement account. And some other old school pastors say, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't have a retirement account. But the reason that I have an, a retirement account is because I am going to be an urban missionary till the day that I die. But probably before that day, I'm going to get old and won't be worth a salary anymore. I want to have a retirement fund for me so that I can keep ministering even after I don't deserve a salary anymore until the end. Because I want to spend it all. And so when we give, start gospel-centered and move out from there in word and in deed. Give to both. And one of those outside concentric circles, yeah, it's fine and good to give to non— don't give to anti-Christian organizations, but it's fine to give to non-Christian organizations. But then moving back into the center, it is normal, for example, for a Christian to have a home church and give to that home church. It's normal and good to give to a lot of missionaries and ministries. That's what we should do as we invest in eternity. And as we do, the duty of generosity becomes delight. And it's contagious. It's not boring. I love getting missionary reports. I love it when in our offering mo moment rotation here at Liberty Collingswood, when we talk about what we're able to do and what we're able to give. I loved how last week Derek Dalrymple was able to say, we, we hit and exceeded our goal for flood, flood relief for love-driven ministries in Salima, Malawi. That is awesome. And if you gave to that, not in a prideful way, but you're able to say, that was awesome. I had the privilege and honor of being able to give generously in places that really, really needed it. Will we give? And then finally, fullness. Back to that problem. Everybody says generosity is a good thing, right? And yet we don't do it. The Bible is true when it says our hearts are turned to self. A recent writer talking about generosity first said biochemically, Psychologists and researchers see and know that when we're generous, it actually feels good for us, and yet we still don't do it. If giving feels so good, why, why don't people do more of it? One survey found, for example, that 85% of Americans donate less than 2% of their income to charities. The richest country in the world, the great majority of us, give less than 2%. We're turned towards self. But hear what the Bible says as well. Whether you're here this morning as a Christian or skeptical, Jesus says the only way that this is going to change is if I give you a new heart. That's the only way. 
And that's actually what's promised here in Jeremiah, verses 39 and 40. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Let Jesus give you the fullness of God himself, a new heart. And in this section of Jeremiah, in multiple passages, Jeremiah says, a day is coming when I will give a new heart to my people that is fulfilled in Jesus through his crucifixion and through his resurrection. And that's a gracious fullness that we're given. If you believe in Jesus, God sanctifies you. God gives you that new heart. God justifies you and forgives you. Give from there. One of the passages that we talk about a lot at Liberty Collingswood when we give our offering moment is when Paul speaks about Jesus in economic terms from 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And this is in the midst of Paul calling the church at Corinth to generosity. If you're stingy in your heart, start there. God, give me a new heart. That's the only thing that's going to make me more generous. This old heart is selfish to the core. I need a new heart. And if you're somebody that's skeptical of spiritual realities, uh, I would say, why should you give it all? (laughs) What's the rationale? And the past few generations of ethical philosophy, it gets really complicated with a lot of fancy arguments as secular philosophers struggle to put a good ethical system that includes generosity on top of survival of the fittest. And it requires really brilliant people with really fancy arguments because it's so hard at the end of the day to put those two things together. If it's survival of the fittest all the way down, I'm not going to be generous to anybody except my own family. But Jesus calls us to a different goal. And that's a witness. Here, at least in this part of the country, Christians have a horrible reputation, sometimes deserved, sometimes undeserved. It's okay. But if you're here as a Christian, would your non-Christian friends say that Christianity stuff is really weird, but boy, they're generous. They're generous. And when we think about racism in our country, the sermon series last year from Lent, we said one of the ways to address systemic injustice is to give money in various ways. That helps. And this is where we'll end. What will people say about you? whether friends right now or if somebody would just start observing, not only you externally, but would click on your bank account and see what you're spending. Would they say, you're generous? Would they say, I'm generous? From the fullness of God, give generously. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.